Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the prospects for tax reform. And Richard, we know that the first big item on President Trump's legislative agenda was, of course, changing the health care system. That initiative crashed and burned rather quickly. It looks like it may have a second life yet, but in the interim, a lot of the energy is being directed towards tax reform. We don't yet know what exactly that will look like, but let's just go through some of these issues sort of piece by piece. And I'll start here. The thing that we've been talking about for years, the thing that even Barack Obama paid lip service to was the idea of lowering America's corporate tax rate. It presently stands at 35 percent. It's higher than anywhere else in the world except for the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Richard, how important is it to overhaul corporate taxes? Well, for one thing, if you're trying to talk about the repatriation of capital from overseas and what you do is you put this buzzsaw upon it, people will keep their wealth out of the country. Once they keep it out of the country, it's not going to be available for investment inside the country and it's going to invite all sorts of charade games such as the ones that have been played by Apple with its headquarters in Ireland lead to inversions of corporate arrangements of one kind or another to avoid this. And so the first rule in each and every one of these cases is if you think that this is a desirable reform, and I think that it is, uh, what you do is you just do it and get the right structure in place and worry about the revenue questions after. What is the danger of this stuff is that somebody says, well, we can't lower the corporate tax unless we raise some other tax. And then you have this huge fight of which tax you want to raise. One of the suggestions has been putting on border taxes with respect to goods that come into the United States. I'm quite opposed to that. I believe, A, that it's a protective tariff when all gets it done. And also, if we start doing it to other people, other people will start doing to us. And so you don't want to sort of condition a sensible reform on making some other reform, which is not quite appropriate. So then where else do you try to raise revenues? Well, you can start going to the individual stuff, uh, but you now are faced with a very serious kind of problem. Problem number one is at the top end, you're already at the point where you've probably passed the maximum amount of revenues that you can get from the top 1%. That is, there's the famous Laffer curve, which says up to a point, uh, raising taxes increases government revenues. And then when you go too high, it leads to tax avoidance, a cessation of gainful activities, early retirements, and you get less money. We're certainly on the wrong side of the Laffer curve, so that's not going to work. Uh, what you could also do is to try to raise taxes on the bottom 47%, which pay nothing at all. That's not going anywhere either in the short run, as far as I can tell. A, because many of these people also do pay taxes. They pay sales taxes and social security taxes. And even if you were to try to raise them up, as in principle I think ought to be done, uh, what's going to happen is you couldn't generate near the amount of revenue to offset what's taking place um, in, the, um, in, in, in the corporate tax. So then what do you have to do my view is you cannot think about tax reform separable uh, from much more fundamental structural reforms, both of the tax system and otherwise. Uh, the single biggest cost in the United States today relative to 30 years ago, which is a multiple trillion dollar expenditure, 
are compliance costs. Uh, they pervade every area of the economy. And when you put compliance costs on different kinds of firms, ventures that may make sense economically won't be done if you have to pay this implicit tax on the way they've done. So the tax you want to relow, lower is the compliance tax and radically rethink the way in which you define the kinds of obligations that people have, whether you're in banking or insurance or health care and so forth, to fess up to the government all of their many sins. If you could change that, it would release some of these kinds of activities. And apart from compliance, generally speaking, if you had more market liberalization, it would produce larger and better figures on virtually every one of the areas that we're talking about. In fact, one of the interesting things about the Trump agenda is that sort of bed rest, i.e. not passing any new goofy regulations of the sort that you could expect from a Clinton administration had she won, uh, you see fairly substantial growth in the stock market, fairly robust numbers in the employment markets. No new taxes at least gives people some security that things aren't going to change to the worse. And then hopefully, if you could pull back on that, uh, you would continue this kind of expansion and you'd be able to meet the uh, changes. It's not just the tax rates that do it. You have to have a complete regulatory mindset. And we could talk, if you want, about a consumption tax alternative, which I also think would do some help. I actually want to get you to that and some of the other options in a few moments. But one thing I want to do first, because we know it's going to be a live part of the discussion as it comes up, there's always a big argument on the right every time that conservatives get a shot at tax reform over whether Congress should quote-unquote pay for the cuts. In, in other words, is the only responsible way to cut taxes to also cut spending at the same time so that you don't run the risk of polluting the deficit any further. What's your view on that? Well, I think there's a great deal of sense to that. One of the things that Milton Friedman used to say a long time ago is that there are three ways in which you could raise money, and one of them is to inflate the currency, which, of course, in the long term distorts the holdings that everybody has. And you can do it a little bit, but you don't want to do it a lot. Uh, we have a little bit of room on that margin because inflation is anything a little bit too low. The second thing you could do is start borrowing and increase the amount of the national debt, but we're at the point where it's too large in any event relative to the size of the GPP, so you don't want to do that. Uh, so what you want to do is to basically then keep the taxes there at their current levels in order to force some kinds of expenditure cuts. And the way in which I would look at this is as follows. Take in effect every program that was put into place in last 10 years and ask yourself the question, how did we do without it before the year 2007? Well, we somehow are the managed to do it. What happens is every time you ratchet up an entitlement, it becomes the new baseline, and it turns out that anything short of that is cataclysmic, even though two years ago you weren't there. And what you have to do is to figure out how it is that you're going to reverse this. And this is, you know, for the entire range of things, agricultural subsidies, ethanol subsidies, obvious targets of one kind or another, various kinds of price support programs for sugar. The agricultural sector is rife with waste. And, you know, it's important that somebody like Chuck Grassley be put in his place so that he doesn't essentially hold the entire nation hostage to uh, the interests of Iowa wheat farmers and corn farmers and so forth. But you see all of that and you try to get it there. Um, and if you can do that, then I think you've got a fighting chance. But the truth of the matter is the United States spends too much money on things that really aren't worth doing. And what you really need to do is to take a budget by budget inventory. And politically, every one of these oxes that are going to be grought is going to give us a huge thing. There are certain things which I don't think, frankly, are worth trying. Getting rid of the legal aid services, a relatively small bore item. Certainly getting rid of the National Science 
as a foundation in the National on Health, National Institutes of Health would be crazy under these circumstances because they generate public goods. Uh, but what you really want to do is to understand the following very simple proposition that the amount of money state today spent on transfer payments relative to long-term infrastructure investment and good roads and national science research and so forth has simply absolutely swamped everything else that has happened. If you cannot reverse the transfer payment situation, then nothing else that you do will really make a long-term difference. I want to get your reaction to something that was floated and then quickly shot down earlier this week. There was a report in the Washington Post that the Trump administration was considering the possibility of a value-added tax and or a carbon tax as new revenue sources. Now, people from the administration quickly shot that down, but let's just talk about those two ideas on the merits apart from the politics. Anything attractive to you about either a VAT or a carbon tax? Well, go back to what I said about what I think to be the state of the social cost of carbon. It was proposed as an externality tax because the coastal cost of carbon was thought to be high. If it's not that high, then it's just an absolute nightmare, pure redistribution, stop things that you want, you should not do it. The value-added tax is a very different kind of proposition. It's sort of like a national sales tax, which takes place on each piece of value that you add during the production cycle. And if you start looking at this in some of the European countries, it becomes the major source of revenue. I agree with the conservative critique, which says you might like the VAP in one form or another, but if you don't get rid of some other tax program, you're just going to have the governments coming at you two different ways. Um, in addition to the income tax, the estate tax, and state sales tax, you're going to now have a national thing like this. Uh, the basic rule in the United States is if somebody could find a way to impose a tax, somebody in Congress will find a way to expend those kinds of revenues. So unless you shut down the income tax entirely, and go to this thing and make sure that it goes out if the income tax comes in. I'm not in favor of doing it. I think as a device that has certain advantages, my own preference is for a flat consumption tax of one sort or another so that you don't have to know the amount of income that people earn in order to calculate the amount that you have to pay. And it means that you don't get the political intrigue about how we manage to raise the tax on our enemies while lowering it on our friend. And you could do a flat VAP, which would have essentially the same thing and the roughly the same kind of factors as a consumption tax. So I'm willing to do all of those things. But what I'm not willing to do is to create a new source of revenue for the government unless you shut an old source of revenue down. I don't have a sense of where these pieces are going to fall in the discussion that we're about to have about tax reform. But every time that people talk about simplifying the tax code, especially if they're talking about something simple like a a flat tax, there are two huge icebergs that always come up in the conversation. One is the deduction for mortgage interest and the other is the deduction for charitable donations. Now, I I realize each of those raise sort of vastly different considerations, but I wonder if you'd consider the value of each of them in turn for us, Richard. Yes. Look, I am not in favor of the interest deduction with respect to home mortgages. That interest is being used to purchase consumption, which is outside the tax system. And so therefore, if the income that you get from it is imputed and outside the tax system. I think the same thing should be said with respect to the deduction that generates it. In business, of course, you have to allow for these deductions for depreciation and interest because otherwise you're taxing income without an offset and every business in the United States is going to be broke. 
I'm actually a strong defender of the charitable deduction and think it should be the full value of the contribution. And what I do is I treat this as a matching grant program, which allows individuals to partic- which particular kind of public good that they subsidize, so long as they pay 30 or 40 percent of the total value in question. If you do not have a charitable deduction, then all the private sector work, which is done on basic science or supporting the arts and everything else, will shrivel up and die. And if that's the case, then the government will take these things over. And the last thing I want to do on matters of culture is to have a monolithic government running these kinds of situations. So I would keep it. And I think one of the sneaky things that the Obama administration proposed, I don't think it passed, is to say, well, we're going to raise the maximum tax bracket up to 39, but we're going to cap your charitable deduction down to 28%. Yes, in the short run, you may be hurting the donor, uh, making him less willing to give to taxation. But remember, the reason we give the, do- the, the deduction is the guy doesn't get any direct consumption out of the money that he gives, but many poor and needy people and many worthy causes do get that kind of money. And so what you're doing is you're essentially drawing up money from private sources, which is much more efficient at doing this uh, than the public sources. So as to the two of them, I have very different kinds of responses. The last question that I'll put to you, you mentioned earlier that litany of things that we could probably do without, whether it's farm subsidies or ethanol subsidies, the sugar supports, et cetera, et cetera. There are plenty of people who agree with you on that point and plenty of people who would be critical of it who would say to you, Richard, so much though of the spending that we have is driven by our entitlements, by Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, also interest on the debt and then you've got sort of military spending beneath that. We can probably – Put that off to the side for a moment. Is there a way to get the United States on sort of a sensible fiscal path without looking seriously at entitlement reform? No. I mean it's just too big a part of the budget. I mentioned that earlier on. You take either federal or state budget and compare the amount of public monies that was spent on growth in 1960 relative to transfer payments and do the same thing uh, today nearly 60 years later and the numbers completely flip over. I mean the single largest expenditure in the United States apart from the debt are all the entitlement programs. It's certainly not defense, which is barely a 3% of the economy of that. So this is way out of whack. Well, how do you undo these things is the political question of a lifetime. Let me give you one idea, example of how hard it is and why we have to essentially overcome this. People said, well, you know, we really ought to do is to raise the minimum age at which you could collect Social Security benefits. And there was a huge fight about that. And then somebody had the bright idea that we would do it a month per year, but then they exempted 17 years between something in the 1940s to about 1960. The people bored in those years. So no change takes place on that. And, you know, the Social Security system, which is relatively easy to prices, not completely solvent and may go belly up. The Medicaid system and the Medicare system, which are much more difficult to price, are a much more serious problem. And this is because we have all of these deferred payments. On top of that, we have a completely corrupt system about the way in which we operate pensions. What we do, in effect, is we underfund them systematically and then announce uh, uh, that the rate of return that you could get on these particular assets will be 7 or 8% when the real market rate of return has been 3 or Four. You do that for a number of years, and after a while, you realize that your unfunded indebtedness dominates everything else. Uh, so we're in a very bad shape fiscally in the United States. Uh, the only way in which I can see making a difference on this is I don't think you're going to win on major cuts on entitlements. You may be able to stop new ones, but unless you deregulate the rest of the economy and lower certain kinds of taxes, you're not going to get the expanded production that you need. Salvation comes from a combination of both of these things. 
thing. I think the American public is so attuned to its own entitlements, regards these things as God-given natural rights, that we're in for a very rocky road. Donald Trump is not a man who has a deep understanding of how the various pieces put together. Let's hope and pray that the folks who are working in Treasury do. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and it's available at Defining Ideas, which is at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.